Hi there, welcome back to the Tishpacabinator show. Uh, somebody named John Hawtree. I don't even know who that is. They're inviting me to their live, but thanks anyway. Uh, no, I just saw this biography on Lucretia Borgia. Pretty Poison, full documentary biography channel. 340k views, three weeks ago posted. And uh, I was going to be maybe a production assistant line producer. Um, for a, I want to say theater company, film, film company, they were also doing, they were going to do a movie on Tristan and his souls, I think, you know, it's been, it's been a long time, it's been like, I don't know, 10, eight years? since that anyway so um and I when I was finishing up my time at Oxford and I was in the Oxford Film Society I mean um in, in terms of like you know directors filmmakers society of Trista, get it straight. We started it up when I was at Oxford. I also started up a guitar club at my college, St. Edmund Hall, but nobody else. I mean, everybody flaked out. Everybody's such a fucking flake in this world. Anyway, so um, I would, but I would practice anyway. That's why I um, started teaching myself uh, guitar with the Beatles and uh, Ali G. Sasha Barrett Cohen gave me my first guitar, Brazilian guitar, and then my friend Ross, he, he jumped on the bed and broke it, but, um, anyway, Lucretia Borgia, let's, uh, uh, I'm going to do some gardening, more gardening, I'm collecting mesquite seedlings, and potting them up, and then in a year or two, they'll be worth 50, 100 bucks a piece. Baby mesquite trees. Her name was Lucrecia Borgia. I like to do is And she is believed by many to be up. the most depraved woman in huh. history. <laughs> wow. What do you know? I'm all ears. She was the bastard daughter of a pope. <laughs> by the tender age of 16, her alleged escapades were sending shockwaves through Roman society. Bastard daughter of a pope. Sounds fun. Was rumored to have carried on affair with her father. What? And oh my god. Her enemies by spiking their wine with poison. Some even believed she wore a ring drenched in arsenic. Wow. <laughs> During her lifetime, this golden haired came to personify evil. Evil. Over the course of the next five like, centuries, I think it, like it would be, biographies, uh, novels, and even uh, an opera would celebrate her sin. Don Giovanni? But while her infamy persists to this day, Don Giovanni! There are some question whether the tales of Lucrezia Borgia are fact or fiction. Oh, wow. The Crystal Board of Pretty Poison.
Jesus Christ. She was born in Renaissance Rome in the year 1480 into an atmosphere Superstar. of political strife and intrigue. She was the illegitimate child of a cardinal and his concubine. Which one? Pray tell. Do tell. Her earliest Fascinating. Who <laughs> came for frequent visits to her mother's house in the Piazza Pizza di Merlo. Piazza Pizza di Merlo. She called him Papa, even though he wore the crimson robe of the church. <laughs> the fact that he had sired children, however, was not considered unusual Concubine. by the standards of Renaissance society. <laughs> Pretty easy to keep that shit under wraps, I guess, in the Renaissance. His voice was rich and melodious, and his very presence sheer magic. A little girl loved his father with a passion that was to persist throughout her life. An incestuous world. How do you know her it's incestuous? Borgia, a name that for the next 500 years would become synonymous with evil. Evil! Congratulations on saying that word Before correctly. Lucrezia was three years old, her father Alexander took her and her two older brothers from their mother's house to be raised by his cousin. This was a very calculated decision. It was not considered appropriate for Lucrezia or any of her siblings to be raised by Lucretia. their mother. It ultimately didn't fit in with Alexander's ambitions about the rise of his family. Um, I think it reminded them of the taint of illegitimacy raised by their father. They were and could become legitimate. Okay. This decision, though ostensibly done for her own good, would leave an indelible mark on Lucrezia. <sighs> Two things that stand out for me about Lucrezia's childhood were first of all the separation of his mother. She may not have remembered this, but somewhere in her subconscious there was that break. And the other thing was the intense love that she had for the mother, because he just went wild over the That sounds creepy, uh, you know, if it was incestuous, what the fuck? What the fuck? His love of his children was so excessive that it led him to many of his worst mistakes, particularly for Lucrezia, certainly his favorite daughter. Why? What do you mean? Can't just say fucking general statements like that. Fuck. Lucrezia was a typical class girl. Her education included music, poetry, and a reading of the classics. Me too. <laughs> All knowledge she needed in order to participate in the court culture of the time. Okay. For the Renaissance was a period of unparalleled artistic and intellectual brilliance.
advanced talent, such as Da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Machiavelli, often found themselves working in the service of the same patron. Within a relatively brief period of time. Oh, that sounds embarrassing. Wow. Is that embarrassing? How can I get it? Anyway, thanks for tuning in to the Just the Governor to show. Thanks for a million subscribers. Self-expression was a pope so Italy during the Renaissance was not a cardinal country, but a loose confederation of warring city states. Now that he was Pope, Alexander hoped to strengthen the church by bringing these principalities under his control. The marriage of his children, particularly Lucrezia, became a powerful tool for realizing these ambitions. Alexander broke off Lucrezia's engagement, what? believing that he could find a more politically advantageous match. Hmm. To a certain degree, a woman like Lucrezia was 
the property of, of, her, of her father in the sense that, that she was certainly a pawn in the family strategies. Yeah. At the age of 13, Lucrezia found herself betrothed to a man more than twice her age and a complete stranger. Poor Lucrezia. Giovanni Sforza, the Lord of Pizarro, was a man possessed of few talents and less charm. But he happened to be related to the most powerful family in northern Italy. Which one is that? Medici? Lucrezia and Giovanni were married in the Vatican with all the pomp and ceremony that normally accompanies royal nuptials. <laughs> oh, what do you know? <clears throat> The service was over. Her father followed them into the bridal chamber. According to the primary sources, when Lucrezia went to bed with Giovanni Sforza, Alexander was there to make sure the marriage had been consummated. It was a common custom to have a father witness the young couple's act of intercourse. Huh. One that ensured that the marriage contract had been fulfilled. Now, of course, he didn't actually. Well, that's watch awkward. Them. There was a sheet there. But, uh, what he was doing was what every father, every relative did. People were always present when the young couple had sex for the first time. Daughters of powerful men often have a difficult time extricating themselves from the influence of their fathers. And for Lucrezia, bound as she was by the conventions of her time, the task would prove nearly impossible. How's that? Even after she was married, Lucrezia's life would continue to be dominated by her larger-than-life father. Some contemporaries viewed their relationship as incestuous. Oh, One in shit. seven children does not have enough food to eat a healthy and active life. Ago. But what does it take? It's unnaturally close. <laughs> so close, in fact, as to suggest an illicit sexual union. Oh, a little detail. How about a little detail? No. Oh well. Post notes. Too interesting. Current interesting sex lives in the Middle Ages. Sex lives of the Middle Ages. That'd be fun, fun book to write. In the case of Lucrezia Borgia, whatever romantic fantasies she might have entertained about Giovanni Sforza, they were quickly dispelled. There never seems to be, have been anything that could remotely resemble passion between Lucrezia what and Giovanni. Oh, passion. He seems to have been a very tight sort of a man. Uh, and he would leave Lucrezia tight. in Rome alone many, many times and go back to Pesaro. Yeah, yeah, some guys are like that. Within three well. years, a 
shift in political alliances caused Pope Alexander to take a second look at the match he had ordered and wonder if he had made a mistake. <laughs> Again? Jeez. Oh, so he's, he's pimping his, he's pimping his daughter. He just went back to Paisero and he said he was never coming back to Rome and he wanted Lucrezia sent to him. And Alexander didn't want to part with her. Because mm -hmm. it's his fucking wife, yeah. What'd they call it? What'd he call it? Good luck on trying to get married again after that, huh? The episode marks the beginning of Lucrezia's scandalous reputation. <laughs> the rumor of incest, begun by a scorned husband, was now taken up by other enemies of the Borgias. Foremost among these was Francesco Guicciardini, a preeminent historian and one of the most influential men he conceived a loathing for the Borgia family. He believed that 
that they were responsible for many of the evils that not only overtook the church, but overtook uh, Italy as well. And so he became one of their most implacable foes. He simply hated them, and hated all of them, including Lucrezia. Francesco Guicciardini added another inflammatory charge to that of incest. He claimed that Lucrezia routinely used poison to dispose of her enemies. Wow. <laughs> One of the reasons why poison is so associated with the Borgia. We've never answered the core questions of who are we as a species? What are our origins? What's the meaning All of right, life? whatever. Is that poison allows you to do in an enemy or a rival without having to personally be there wielding the sword or the dagger. It was the perfect weapon for the kind of religious politics that went on. You could be smiling in the face of a political rival and praising him while at the same time Poisoning you him. knew that that evening his servant was going to slip him a flagon of wine which would finish him off. More than any other member of her family, Lucrezia became the one associated with poison, in part because of a prejudice against women. <laughs> and then uh, the part, other part, because it was probably true. innocent-faced girl with a reputation for murder would herself become a victim. <laughs> Lucrezia 
Alexia Borgia, still only a teenager, had in her 16 years been subjected to more scandal than most men or women are in a lifetime. <laughs> and yet her resilience of spirit had barely been tested. Shortly after her divorce became final, on a July evening in 1497, Lucrezia and her two brothers, Juan and Cesare, dined at their mother's house in the Piazza Pizzo di Merlo. Pizza di Merlo. Sounds delicious, Pizza di Merlo. Oh my god, shit. She's a ruin. Fuck. Oh man. Oh damn it. After the meal, the brothers said goodnight and disappeared down a darkened street. This was the last time Lucrezia was to see Juan alive. Thanks for tuning into the Christopher Gabinette show. Thanks for the million viewers, followers across social media. Fourteen, fourteen ninety eight. 
and apprehensive Lucrezia waited in the palace of Santa Maria for her bridegroom to arrive. So stand her up. immediately understood the implications. Which are what? I don't. I don't An alliance know. with France was in conflict with the alliance oh. that had been made by her own marriage. Oh. The ties with Good. Alfonso's family would now have to be broken. Oh no. Alfonso, believing his life in danger, fled, leaving behind the pregnant Lucrezia. <laughs> Sound he heard as he descended the steps. 
the neck and shoulders, his clothes soaked in his own blood. Alfonso was carried back to the Vatican. Jesus Christ. He was not expected to survive the night. Outside his sick room to prevent anyone from getting in. She nursed him day and night, and miraculously he began to recover. <laughs> she had healing powers, what do you know? Anyway, thanks for tuning in to the Trish Sopakaragavaramitao channel. If you like my stuff, you can send me cash up. Money signed, the Trista. If you dig, dig my stuff, you want to donate to my slush fund. <laughs> and write me in. Guard is that? Well, according to the chroniclers, Lucretia's reaction was one of enormous grief. Grief so strong that neither her father or her brother wanted to see it. She read a name to a different part of the palace. Another blow, even crueler, was yet to come. Rumors circulated throughout the papal court that the assassin was none other than Cesare's most trusted henchman. Cesare's motive, people claimed, was purely political. What does that mean? All of Rome knew who was responsible oh. for Alfonso's death. Oh, right. But because absolutely secure Shit. evidence, documentation, were lacking. It was possible for her to turn her gaze away from this sordid fact. Even though there seems to be little doubt that Cesare was guilty, there is no indication that Lucrezia ever turned against him. Great love that she must have for the boy 
Well, also, I mean, what can she do, really? He's proof against every enormity. Killer brother. She was guilty, and he was guilty of many of them. Caught in a family in which the exigencies of national politics took precedence over her own happiness, Lucrezia was nothing but a pawn. Yep. seen the great love of her life snatched away she was Fun left home. to wonder would she ever get another chance at happiness <coughs> Lucrezia Borgia Lucrezia. barely 20 years old <laughs> had already been subjected to a scandalous divorce and the murders of both her brother and beloved husband she would have little time to mourn her loss. Within a month after Alfonso's burial, her father began searching for yet another mate. <laughs> well, at least we know she's fertile, don't we? Wow. The Deste family, said to have the elongated skulls from the east. The Destes, however, were not eager to welcome Lucrezia into their midst. The Pope practically had to blackmail the family that he wanted to marry her into in order to take her, because by this time... A lot of people knew about these rumors about her sexual escapades and the incest. In fact, Alfonso Deste's father, the Duke, was so appalled by Lucrezia's reputation that he sent an envoy to Rome with an unusual mission. Her future father-in-law sent a spy to the Vatican to see whether there could be any truth in these rumors and uh, the spy said absolutely not she's a very sweet talented wonderful woman who shows no sign of licentiousness at all the Pope finally managed to strike a deal with the promise of a hefty dowry and Lucrezia was packed off to Ferrara <laughs> Already resigned to the idea of a loveless marriage, it seemed at first as though Lucrezia's expectations would be fulfilled. Her relationship with her husband, Alfonso One in seven children deserve to lead a healthy and active life. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Tristific Gabonetta Show. Shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona, Aaron Stoner, and KPYT, KPYT, Pasquayaki Tribe Radio, your MA on Res with Trista Show. <coughs> Yes. <laughs>
thing. And she she was a woman who craved love. It almost didn't matter what which form it took, even if it were cerebral. Hundreds of miles away from her own family, Lucrezia found herself rejected by her husband and shunned by all his relatives. But perhaps the most painful aspect of life in Ferrara was the fact that she had been forced to give up her infant son, Rodrigo. What? This separation reminded her of her own childhood and the anguish she felt when she was... Wow. This is Humble Pie, a prodigal son Wait, returns home. The fuck? Life of Pies, Book One, by C.S. Johnson. Yeah. Narrated by William oh, Hoyle. Oh, wow, the real queen of Sheba. Holy shit. Chapter One, Matthias, M.D., Davidson. Oh, man. My palms are sweaty and hot against the fraying full leather that. of my steering wheel as I drive. This week, join me as I go in search of one of the most enigmatic women in all of history, the Queen of Sheba. Who do you think you are, the, Bible the Queen says of Sheba? She from the desert, leading a the caravan of to riches ask? to the court of King Solomon in Jerusalem. Many cultures claim her as the raider. But what's the truth behind the stories? To find out, I'll explore ruined temples in Ethiopia. I think I've actually But anyway, Lucretia Borgia biography channel. Right, it's pretty poison. There we go. Away from her mother. <laughs> Considering her feelings of neglect, it was no wonder that she began to look for comfort outside her marriage. She was to find solace in the exquisite lyrics of the court poet Pietro Bembo. Lucrezia <laughs> appears to have loved poetry inordinately she appears to have been dependent on poetry uh, this was one of her great uh, aesthetic passions mm. and and bimbo satisfied that completely so she got a lot from the relationship of an aesthetic artistic dimension bimbo expressed his devotion to lucrezia in his poetry she responded by sending him a lock of her golden hair. What joy for me. Every day you find some new way to fan my ardor. Today, you did this with what once adorned your lovely brow. Pietro Bembo, July 15th. I can barely hear this shit, man. How do you know? Lucrezia found herself rejected by her husband and shunned by all his relatives. But perhaps the most painful aspect of life in Ferrara was the fact that she had been forced to give up her infant son, Rodrigo. 
This separation reminded her of her own childhood and the anguish she felt when she was torn away from her mother. Considering her feelings of neglect, it was no wonder that she began to look for comfort outside her marriage. She was to find kind of in the exquisite lyrics of the court poet, Pietro Bembo. Lucrezia appears to have loved poetry inordinately. She appears to have been dependent on poetry. Now, this was one of her great aesthetic passions and and bimbo satisfied that completely so she got a lot from the relationship of an aesthetic artistic dimension bimbo expressed his devotion to lucrezia in his poetry <coughs> she responded by sending him a lock of her golden hair <coughs> joy for me. Every day you find some new way to fan my ardor. Today you did this with what had once adorned your lovely brow. Pietro Bembo, July 1503. It was not long before the two began a secret but strictly platonic affair. she actually in love with Bembo? Possibly, possibly not. But these were the sort of platonic relationships in which love was expressed, I think quite often because there wasn't a very formal place for love within the bounds of marriage itself. Diverted as Lucrezia was by her dalliance with Bembo, she still longed to see her father. In the year and a half since she had been in Ferrara, she had not let a week go by without writing to him. She was overjoyed to hear that he planned to visit her that autumn. Then only weeks before his trip, she learned that he was dead. left her feeling as though she herself were dying. All she wanted was to be left alone to mourn the beloved figure who filled her childhood. The tragedy marked the turning point in her life. No longer under her father's domination. She was finally free to forge a new identity for herself. In her official capacity as the Duchess of Ferrara, she was to earn a reputation for the skillful way in which she resolved civil disputes. Her marriage also seemed to have undergone a metamorphosis. So much so that it was suggested that now that the Pope was dead, Alfonso was free to seek a divorce. What? He chose not to. Perhaps even this most errant of husbands Aaron. had come to feel some real affection for Lucrezia.
during the course of their marriage, which was to last 17 years, Lucrezia gave birth to six children. By all accounts, she was a doting mother. The years in Ferrara were perhaps the most satisfying of her life. But despite the fact that she comported herself with great dignity, the malicious rumors of incest and murder continued to grow. She is viewed as a freak. In the popular mind, as the most depraved woman in history. I think this is wrong. I think this is an exaggeration. Uh, I think much closer to the truth about her character is the assertion that Lucrezia was the most unfortunate woman in modern history. <clears throat> yeah. Because. Ironically. It was just as she made peace with her life that she passed away. She died during childbirth at the age of 39 with her husband, Alfonso Deste, at her side. When she was buried in the convent of Corpus Domini, Alfonso fainted and had to be carried away. Two days later, he reported the news of her passing to a friend. And then he died too. I cannot write this without tears, knowing myself to be deprived of such a dear and sweet companion. For such her exemplary conduct and the tender love which existed between us made her to me. Alfonso Deste, 1519. Her death also caused great grief among the residents of Ferrara, who believed their duchess to be of warm heart and generous spirit. And so it was that Lucrezia Borgia, perhaps the most reviled woman of all time, was mourned deeply by the people who knew her best. Well, what do you know? <coughs> that was pretty cool. Pretty good. Pretty good, I would say. <coughs> A little light on details. Um, but that's okay. I mean, uh, um, I get the, I get the picture. I think. Think about the, uh, the poison. Maybe so. <coughs> I love uh, biographies. They really show you what it was like to live in other times. Okay, so y'all are still there? Or did you check out? Oh, you're still there? Hey there, man. What's up? What are you doing? Are you guys still alive? Anyway, um, 
obviously, or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> Shout out to my Irish listeners, my Italian listeners, and uh, my uh, global family. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. I hope you're doing all right there. Uh, hang in there. Uh, I don't know about you, but it's been like Christmas. It's a Christmas-like news cycle these days with fuckface Nazi ass dump hashtag dump Trump. <laughs> Take a dump Trump. Take a dump Trump. Take a dump Trump. That's a good um, meme. Right. Dumpty 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 dum. <clears throat> anyway, um, so come back and we'll watch this. Uh, we'll listen to this uh, other one, the real queen of Sheba. And I'm gonna do some um, more gardening. My mom used to always say. Who do you think you are, the Queen of Sheba? <laughs> I think maybe that was like uh, <clears throat> programming because yeah, we're. Uh, I think I think Isis might be the Queen of Sheba. Just a just a hunch <clears throat> because okay, Queen of Sheba was Ethiopian, all right, and that's where we all come from. Okay. All right, anyway, bye. Wear a mask, idiots. In public indoor spaces, not outside, for fuck's sake. Hi there, welcome back. Shout out to Mama G. You used to always say to me, who do you think you are? No, not with a British accent. She would say, uh, who do you think you are? The Queen of Sheba? Ha 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 ha. That's kind of like it. <laughs> All right, golden blood, curse the Borgia's family. I think we should have a Borgia fest. The dark legend. <laughs> Ooh, top legal experts. Okay, postpone. It's a motion Live. for judicial oversight that he filed on Monday, and he hasn't even served the motion yet. And let's turn to Texas, where a Texas Trump appointed judge made a ruling that will prevent women from getting life-saving medical care in emergency uh -huh. rooms where the standard of care would require an abortion. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice got a key win in federal court in Idaho where women were permitted to get emergency care if they needed it under federal law, MTALA. Then we turn to Georgia, where Governor Kemp is trying to quash a subpoena for him to testify huh. before the grand jury, basically saying he's too important to testify. <laughs> and after the Court of Appeals, uh, the 11th <clears throat> directed the too big of a fish to fry. He was claiming he was immune from answering under the speech and debate clause. Lindy's, Lindsey Graham's response, everything, everything. Don't ask me any questions. Then let's talk about the DOJ release of this memo relating to Bill Barr's decision not to prosecute Trump. The most consequential legal news, explosive legal news this week. And really, Pope, yeah. the question right, right now is not if Donald Trump will be indicted, but when. 
Yes, yes, yes. And Trista, you welcome, That's Universe. Okay. I'm going to rename this episode The Wheels of Justice Turn Slow, but Exceedingly Fine. And Donald Trump is under a massive wheel of justice that is just grinding him and pulverizing him at every turn, whether Yay. it's uh, things going on in Florida and the federal Perfect. judge, Fawny Willis in Fulton County, Sooner or the anywhere banner. else. We're going to talk about it all today. But for those that have been listeners and followers of this show, it should come as no surprise what's happening and that it's happening at this particular moment in time that as we turn to the fall. That's about the right. most I mean, garbage human being. One of the benefits in modern of history. To Legal AF, not just one episode, <laughs> but following it through, is that all of these developments have been percolating for quite some time. Um, you know, the even this development of the search at Mar-a-Lago, you and I have been talking about it in January when the 15 boxes were taken in January of 2022 was one of the things we feature here on Legal AF. We, Legal AF. we talked about how that was a violation. There could be a referral to the DOJ. The um, obviously, the DOJ was tight-lipped on their investigation until the search warrant was ultimately executed uh, on August 8th. But we now know from seeing the affidavit and the portions that were released that the DOJ, the FBI, really gave Trump every shot in the Opportunity. world um, to try to return these records. And Donald Trump's not just holding on to these confidential, top secret, sensitive, departmented information because he likes it, right? Like, I think that's what sometimes he's using it as uh, ammunition against his enemies. That's what he's doing. This information is national defense information. That's what's clear as we read this information. This is the type of stuff that gets spies killed, that gets Americans abroad killed. This is some of the most top sensitive information, so much so. Yeah, let's hear what the Republicans are saying, huh? Sensitive compartmented information facilities called SCIFs. And you can't just, you know, where there's no broadband, no Wi-Fi, because the uh, foreign, our foreign enemies are literally paying billions of dollars to try to access um, this information, which, as we read the warrant that was released in the portion probably that already sold, unredacted, um, we see that this was like in in random rooms in Pine Hall um, when Donald Trump finally gave back the 15 boxes uh, not because he wanted to not because he was not because he was caught with records that he wasn't supposed to have they found all these documents intermingled that were top secret national secret information and they were horrified and they made the nara the national archives made the recommendation and referral to the doj so what happened popak so the david in support of the search warrant under Rule 41, Federal Rule uh, of Criminal Procedure 41, which sets forth the procedures for getting a warrant. Remember, there are three documents. There's the affidavit, which is the declaration of usually an FBI agent who states why there's probable cause. The second document is the warrant. The warrant sets forth the areas to be searched and the specific crimes for which there is probable cause. And then there is the return, and the return lists the documents that were obtained in connection with the search, and the return is given to the lawyers or the person who's had their premises or or, or whatever searched or their uh, phone searched or whatever it is. And so we already had the search warrant. And we have already seen the return. Um, and now the issue is over the affidavit. Um, now, 
who are the individuals requesting that the affidavit to be unsealed? Well, you would think it would be Donald Trump because he was whining about it on his social media platforms. Unseal it, release it to the public. No, it was the press. Well, Donald Trump never filed any motions at all. Zero. Zip. Zilch. <laughs> no pleadings before Magistrate Judge Reinhardt asking that these documents be unsealed. The only people who asked for the documents to be unsealed, who do this in every case of a high-profile nature, was the media. And so what ended up happening was because the media requested that Judge Reinhardt unseal the affidavit because it had this public purpose, the government had to respond, and the government had to say, look, dear, we can't reveal a lot of this information. I want to let people know. It's very rare, very rare, that the affidavit is released at all. You go back to the Rudy Giuliani search warrant case in 2021, he asked that the affidavit be released there. The New York federal judge Oatkin said, nope, I'm not releasing the affidavit. We don't release affidavits pre-indictment. But because here was a former president, the public interest was so high, Magistrate Judge Reinhardt last week basically said, look, I want you to go back, government, redact the portions that you think are confidential and release the rest to the public, which the government did. The government made redactions. Judge Reinhardt granted in full what the government requested be redacted. The government sought to redact, make confidential sources and methods, confidential informants, citizen witnesses, um, other information that would be subject to grand jury, what's called Rule 6E, uh, pre-indictment grand jury information, standard stuff that would always remain confidential. Trump didn't challenge that in any way. Um, the judge granted what the uh, uh, department requested, and then we got the affidavit. And so, Popak, now that we've seen the affidavit on Friday, um, we know that there were uh, a number, a number of bombshells in there, but you want to break down what was most, what you found to be most interesting, most informative, um, and why this is going to make Trump be indicted. Yeah. We have a fourth document that got filed. Along with the redactions, the Department of Justice and its counterintelligence senior attorney, um, who actually went to Mar-a-Lago uh, to look at documents as early as January and signed what they're calling an ex parte, ex parte memo that accompanied the redaction to explain, not to the judge, I don't think, but to explain to the world what happened and the crimes that are likely to have been committed. Gave me a lot of detail, gave you a lot of detail that we're going to share now about the nature of the investigation and what was in the boxes and why the Department of Justice made the momentous decision, historical decision, to execute a search warrant on what they refer to as the former president of the United States. You know, Donald Trump likes to call himself the president of the United States, but they refer to him as F. Otis in all of their filings. What I learned was the following. One, the primary focus of the investigation, putting aside the sexy title of the Espionage Act, is obstruction. And the obstruction, which you and I and other legal commentators were guessing about two weeks ago, about well, which, which, which obstruction are we talking about? Are we talking about obstruction about an investigation not related to these documents, or are we talking about obstruction related to these documents? And it's clear from the filing made by the Department of Justice, along with the redacted black affidavit is that the focus is on obstruction by donald trump himself and those around him related to these 
national defense documents. Let me be clear. I don't think we've ever been anything but clear on this podcast. Donald Trump potentially compromised the most sensitive national security information and the national security of this country by taking and retaining two dozen boxes containing almost a thousand top secret classified documents and information, including, and not to put too fine a point on this, including documents, as you said, that get people killed and are the result of clandestine operations and the result of the application of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, an act from the 1980s that a judge oversees. They already determined from the first batch of documents that Trump decided to have pulled from his grip, not even voluntarily in the first wave, that there were special intelligence SI in the box. There was human clandestine source information, what they call HCS. There was no foreign, N-O-F-O-R-N, meaning not to be released to a foreign national, and other information that it was created by the spy community, the human intelligence, the human assets around the world that Trump decided to take for whatever reason. And when they saw in their in their first wave of documents that he finally returned in January, the existence of all of these commingled documents that were unfolded, unclassified, mixed with other papers, this scared the crap out of the Department of Justice and the National Archive. So you have two obstruction charges that are potential that are being revealed in the affidavit and the supporting material along with the affidavit. One of them is, one of them is obstructing the National Archive in their federally protected work and required work, and the Department of Justice, who gave Trump 15 months to get the documents back. This is where criminal intent, I know Karen and I had a little bit of a debate on the Wednesday show about <laughs> criminal intent, and I know her focus was, well, it's always difficult to prove intent. I don't think so in this case, because the Department of Justice shot, you know, gave him a warning shot 15 months ago and said, return all of the documents that you have that we consider to be national defense or classified or otherwise. And he spoon fed them and then even had one of his attorneys in the meeting with the counterintelligence Department of Justice official. <coughs> who certified that everything that was quote-unquote classified or national defense had been returned, which we know now is a lie. But Trump, having been put on notice directly by the Department of Justice, the National Archive, and the FBI, that these documents needed to be immediately returned, and having retained them, Despair her. <laughs> that is part of the criminal case. The other aspect that was interesting, then, from what's now been revealed in the affidavit, even on. Trumpy Von Schittler We'll have to find yet another crappy lawyer, haha. The black lines, you know, all, all the things that were revealed, is the extent of the level of civilian witnesses, unnamed, that are cooperating with the Department of Justice concerning the, the improper, illegal document retention by Donald Trump. And it's not one, because the phrases, the adjectives used are multiple, the voluminous amounts of civil 
civilian witnesses, right? Witnesses that are outside the government that are cooperating with the government that can, of course, cannot be named for fear of threat or intimidation by this president and all those around him. So I learned that obstruction is really the focus. That's the obstruction related to the actual document retention and proper document retention by Donald Trump and those around him that they're talking about nuclear secrets being in the box and the highest level of human clandestine intelligence that as you so eloquently put it gets people killed if revealed and the thing that was the go moment for the government to go to the special to the uh, to the uh, magistrate judge to get the search warrant was the holy shit moment if you will is when they went through the boxes and realized that it that had all of this intelligence in the first batch of 15 and then they pulled and for whatever reason, the Trump organization voluntarily pursuant to a subpoena without fighting it, turned over the surveillance video for the cameras out in front of these various locations, the, the Pine Lounge, which is some hallway leading to the bedrooms of Mar-a-Lago for Melania and Donald, the Office of 45 or whatever that is in, in Mar-a-Lago. I guess that's where he stores all his crap. The basement the basement doors oh, when they got the surveillance videos they 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 understood that not only was trump illegally retaining these material but he wasn't even protecting them people all sorts of people before and after scheduled meetings with the government were going in and out of the rooms now it's time now that's the go period to go to the, to the federal judge and convince him which they did now having filed all of that there's a time clock that our followers and listeners be sensitive to the Department of Justice is, as we speak, and for the last two weeks, reviewing these 11 categories of documents. I have no doubt Popak, they reviewed every document. But now it's done. It's done. It was done that, it was done that weekend. By day three, they reviewed every document. Uh, the three-day weekend, they were done. They know exactly what's inside. So now you have Johnny come lately. Johnny come lately. And his illustrious legal team who file not an emergency motion to stop anything. Which is what, Everybody loves you. Like, what did you even file? Not an emergency motion to get the judge to put a halt to the continued review of the documents by, by the Department of Justice, but this kind of, you know, lackadaisical, haphazard, poorly researched, so poorly researched and, and poorly argued motion that the judge looked at them in the first hearing and said, I don't even know what you want me to do. What are you asking for? And how does this relate to Judge Reinhardt, Magistrate Judge Reinhardt, and what he's doing? What do you want? Why are you here in my courtroom? Always a bad sign for an advocate. When the judge says, I don't know what you want from me. And why don't you rebrief it? And as you said earlier at the top of the podcast, they they submitted 12 total pages, which is in the world of briefs is pretty brief. And in the 12 pages, which you and I have read and we'll put up on the screen and have it available, all they said was, we need a special master, and there's been special masters before, and Rudy Giuliani had a special master about all his documents, and you have the power to do it, and we can't ask Judge Reinhardt for it. And um, But in there, this is the most devastating thing, because once again, they, they, they wrap themselves around their own axle pen. Did you see in the motion where they, they are starting to assert that Trump had the right under privilege attorney-client privilege or otherwise, to keep the documents. How is that not an admission that Trump knows the documents that he took with him, which is the crime that's being prosecuted? Huh. Nowhere in any of Trump's filings does he say the following. I didn't have top-secret, sensitive, compartmented information. I'm innocent. Okay, they don't say that. <laughs> what they're beginning to argue is that the Presidential Records Act, because his lawyers are just horrible. They've argued this on TV, too. The 
Presidential Records Act has no criminal penalties at all. A president can do anything a president wants to do, commit any crime, and they like cite Nixon. Um, but Popak, when I see the lawyers for Trump go on and they say the Presidential Records Act has no criminal penalties, I'm like, just all you have to do. There's a lot of redactions in the affidavit that was released on Friday. But what was not redacted, one of them was statutory authority and definitions. And it lists what the crimes are. 18 U.S.C. 793E. Whoever having an authorized possession of access to or control over any document or information relating to the national defense, which information the possessor has reason to believe could cause, could be used to cause injury to the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation, communicates, delivers, transmits, or causes to be communicated, deliver or transmitted, or attempts to do or causes the same to any person not entitled to receive it, or willfully retains the same and fails to deliver it to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it. 793E, that's the Espionage Act right there. What other laws are at play here? Fucking spy, ha ha. That's, that's the big one. Don't, but don't, leave, don't leave that one. So I think that's the key to this prosecution. I don't want to bury the other three. I think based on the new, if you ask me, what's, what's your takeaway, Popak? The takeaway is, I think the focus of the investigation is 1519, which is a 20-year penalty, does not require any kind of classification or top secret, and deals with obstruction. It was passed under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Um, it's, it's worse for him and easier to prove for the government. That's the point. The reason I think that is the key in the heart of the prosecution and the other two that you cited, while important, just defeat or deflate his argument about... You know, they're, they're really good at anticipating the next move in a chess game, unlike these idiots who are barely playing checkers without throwing the board over. The lawyers for the Department of Justice anticipating that Trump would try to say, because in conversations with him and his lawyers for 15 months, they heard the arguments already about magical wand making things unclassified. He took work home, whatever they said. To, they killed it with the two other prosecutions about what you said, Espionage Act, and the unlawful retention of national defense documents. That? that removes classified, classified versus not What are you doing, guys? The entire investigation, but the hard the thing I think they get, the, you know, they get them on quickly with a 20 What are you doing, Captain Black? Huh? Unlike the misdemeanors you doing, past, Captain Black? you know, mishandling top secret information well. is this obstruction charge that you're I agree with you, but I slightly disagree with you. But I, you're, you're right, but let me explain to you where my disagreement is. You know, obstruction's always used by the government in situations where criminals are trying to hide their criminal conduct. And so, of course, obstruction is the, is the focus at this stage because... Trump has been obstructing up until this point. Obstructing by reading the unsealed portions of the affidavit that was Sing released it. on Friday because it, it lists what happened. It talks about how, after Trump left the office, trucks came in, they shipped the boxes, shipped the boxes to Mar-a-Lago, the National Archives go, hey, we're missing, like, top secrets. So they reach out to Trump in May of 2021. Finally, after all this effort to get it back, they basically get Trump to ship back 15 boxes. There's all of this kind of dispute between uh, January and like, April and May of 2022. Yeah, and June. And June. 
because one of the things that Trump is arguing also there is executive privilege over these documents. And then NARA finally gets a legal opinion and goes, these are not executive privilege documents. First off, Biden has holds executive privilege. You don't. And these are national security. They don't belong to you. You can't just say executive privilege documents are our most top secret documents. But, here's and you're conceding, but you're conceding that you have them if you're saying executive privilege. Here's the thing. Trump could have filed in May of 2022 an injunction or okay. challenged executive privilege in court. He didn't file anything in May of 2022. That's how arrogant and cocky and just, you know, criminally minded he is. And then you go from the May of 2022 to June where the top counterintelligence official uh, shows up. Jay Bratt shows up. He's assured that they've returned the documents. Um, Jay Bratt says, well, Put us, you know, put a lock, whatever that room is. Complicants. Okay. How come I can't send it? Oh, it has. secure it number one while we continue our investigation but they told brat that they've given all the documents back in uh, june of 2022 which we know not to be the case now that the government's we've seen the return of the warrant and the return of the warrant shows that there was top secret sensitive compartmented information obtained so we obstruction is the focus to the extent that that timeline that i just gave shows the obstruction and the lies and the deceit and it's a no-brainer we it, it's almost stipulated liability at this point based on the time frame that i gave but the other statutes that i gave popak espionage act and the other one 18 usc 2071 which is willfully and unlawfully concealing removing mutilating or obliterating and destroying those documents that statute though those come into play now particularly in focus because the government's got the documents back yeah. Um, and then, and then there is a footnote here, though, in this, uh, in the affidavit as well, that does talk to the point that classification for all those crimes we listed is not an element of it. Notice I didn't say classification once. It's stealing national defense information Absolutely. that doesn't belong to you and not returning it. And then to put a finer point, Popak, what you said about what Donald Trump filed, Donald Trump did not file anything before the magistrate who's hearing these issues related to the search warrant, the magistrate judge who signed the search warrant. That's Judge Reinhardt. Instead, earlier this week on Monday, Trump filed a new lawsuit.
Eileen Cannon, who is a Trump appointee, appointed by Trump in 2020, Federalist Society since 2005, but still a judge like Eileen Cannon has, like, hopefully has dignity and respect, who's like, I'm not going to just let people just file whatever freaking documents they want to file in my court. But there, two weeks late, after the government's reviewed it, Trump says, hey, can you provide a special master? And for those asking, what's a special master? We talk about a lot of legal AF. It's just an independent retired judge or a uh, or a retired lawyer or, or a practicing lawyer who just reviews the documents and prepares reports for the court and says, these are privileged, these are not privileged. But Trump did that. Like, it's basically a moot point at this. And then when you read the most recent filing that Trump made, just the judges you mentioned in that other case said, am I even entitled to hear this? Like, why aren't you filing it in the court before Judge Reinhardt? Because all Trump would have to do before Judge Reinhardt, if he wanted a special master, is just ask for it there. And right away, the day the search warrant's executed, what your lawyer would do is go into court and say to Judge Reinhardt, hey, can we please get a special master on this? While, while, it's been, while, it's, while the nine, if you and I had the case, <laughs> we would never take this case. During the nine hours of the search, we would have already been an emergency application to the yeah. court in the Southern District of Florida, arguing about quashing it, you know, doing everything that he did two weeks later, okay, in the wrong court with the wrong judge, with a judge that is even questioning her own jurisdiction over the issue, as you pointed out. But look, you and I, just to bring it back home, when we talked about this two weeks ago, I said, and you, you said, Trump asking to have this thing released was all bullshit, that he knew that if this ever got released in any kind of unredacted form, it would be terrible for him. And just look the truth would at be the added, media reports since, yes, since two days ago, since the unredacted, mostly unredacted affidavit was released. It has been terrible for Trump. Terrible. There's not a legal commentator worth his salt former justice department former doj former fbi who hasn't said that that he that trump is in mortal peril because of the affidavits released and what it indicates about the scope and uh muscularity of the prosecution he never wanted that released and and to say to have him say in his papers ah the the released blackened redacted affidavit it makes more questions than it answers I mean, oh, and then they cite, and here's the thing, they, they, they then cite the Rudy Giuliani search warrant case, right. and guess what, if you just picked up and read that case, which I did right after, because I'm like, that doesn't sound right to me, we and sure that. enough, the judge, we talked about it here, yeah, but the federal judge in New York, when Rudy Giuliani said, release the affidavit, the judge didn't even release like redacted and unredacted portions like, like Judge Reinhardt did there. The judge said, you don't get a copy of the affidavit. You know, you know, go away. And in the Giuliani case, it was a whole set of different issues. The government had asked for the special master, not Giuliani. Giuliani said, give me all the documents back, which the court Trick denied. Stars. And there, where there's a, an attorney-client privilege claim, there is usually the standard protocol would either be um, like a taint team that reviews the records before, or you have a special master because it involved a lawyer. And here, in this case, with Trump, there is no... Trump hasn't even argued. I, when you look at the motion or whatever he filed, there's no claim of attorney-client privilege. He just randomly says privilege. And here's the thing, too. The motion that Trump filed, he's like, yeah, let's call this an injunction. 
you can't do that. Like you have to file a you have to file a motion. It's a motion. You have to file an emergency motion with prong with prongs with elements. You have to establish irreparable harm. You have to establish a a probability of success on the merits. You have to show the immediacy of the harm with declarations like the way there's an affidavit that goes with a search warrant. You can't just go willy nilly. Hey, I like just injunction today. And maybe maybe a little special master. How about a little special master, Judge? So I think he's gonna get laughed at of court there. I just think the judge yeah. is going to deny it and say, I don't have jurisdiction. I think Judge Wright has But we don't know. It's a Trump appointee is the one thing. I wanna talk about I w I wanna talk I wanna talk about that. Can't we give my Florida perspective? Get her to recuse you know, herself. This is sort of a nuanced perspective. Because a lot of times and including on this podcast today, Trump we're gonna judge. talk about Trump appointees and non Trump appointees as, hand, as shorthand for how we think the ruling's gonna come out. That doesn't often work in Miami. Those that are, um, there's a lot of Hispanic um, uh, justices, judges, who get appointed. As most people know, Miami in particular is 70% is Hispanic. Wow. Many of them are, you know, and I practice down there and I have friends in the judiciary, um, some of which I supported, some of which I didn't when they ran for office. But usually if they're a republican they're, they're just members of the federalist society they're not overly political in in miami the way they are in other places around the country in texas if I, you and i tell somebody that's a trump appoint appointee we sort of know how the ruling's going to come out that doesn't often work in miami and in south florida because of the other cross you know issues related to ethnicity and and uh and uh, being hispanic or not hispanic and all that so it, i right now She's been making some good rulings, and she's running a very tight ship, and I'm not sure whether she, who she was appointed by is going to matter if she laughs them out of court. Well, here's, cause here's the problem. If she gives Trump the relief, um, everybody's watching those dockets, right? We're all watching that. And so if you could just show up in her court and basically write a love letter and, tr and have the letter be treated as a motion, and, and then a judge says, okay, looks like you wrote me a poem, and based on that poem, I'm going to give you the relief that you request. Don't you think that everyone's going to be citing? Hey, I guess I guess when we file for injunctions, we don't need declarations in your court anymore. Like it would create a free for all situation in her court where it would just look like there are no rules. There are no, and, and everybody would take advantage of the system if that was the case. And as as Trump tried to share, but yeah, that motion's not going anywhere. And so, really, what happens next? Popak here is that you know, the government's conducting its investigation. Oh, one more thing I wanted to mention though about Trump's motion for judicial oversight. Again, a, a made-up title for a motion that uh, it doesn't really exist. He hasn't served the documents. I mentioned this at the top of the show. And so when they filed the motion on last Man, even month, I know that, and I haven't even been to law school. Serving the Southern District of Florida's uh, We're stalling for service. time. Right. Everyone, you see in the movies where there's the process server who goes in and has to serve it. Well, the rules require service occur in, in, in certain ways. You can't just email. If I had a case against a big corporation, for example, right? I can't just email a lawsuit that I file to some random executive VP at the company and go, you've been served because I emailed it to you. That's what Trump's legal team did. 
They basically took the document after they filed it. They didn't serve it on the government the way it's supposed to be. Instead, they emailed it to Jay Pratt, who's the top counterintelligence official, um, and said, here you go, uh, here's the document. And Jay Pratt, like, didn't respond to it, because he's like, what the hell are you, I'm not that guy, I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> Why are you sending this to me? So he didn't respond. And then on the 25th, the Trump uh, lawyers call Jay Pratt and go, hey, so are you going to accept service? They don't even call him the day they send it to him. And then Jay Pratt's like, no, that's not what I do. Just serve who you're supposed to serve if you're filing. I'm, I'm not the person who gets served with these documents. And so then the government had to admit, did you see that profile at yeah, the yeah. very bottom? Not the government. Trump had to admit at the very bottom of the document. They go, we will promptly serve. We will promptly uh, effectuate service. How do you not serve the people that you're suing? They're, how do you email? They, they don't to, know how to lawyer. The worst lawyers ever. To to be clear, yeah, this is, this is people funny. that practice in this arena regularly know how to serve the government. There is a defined way that you serve the government. It's not hard. You know where to find them. You just have to send the process <laughs> server to the right door. Or the Department of Justice representative That's... who signed the paper. You know, you have to officially serve the United States of America. But there's a way to do it, and it's not that hard. So the fact that they spent three out of their 12 pages complaining and crying to the judge about they couldn't figure out service. You know, this is why, look, huh. if you remember at the very beginning of this motion practice, the two lawyers that are supposedly the brains in the operation, the one sitting in Maryland and the other one, Corcoran and the other one, they couldn't even argue the first day in court because the judge rejected, that she's now approved it, rejected their motion for special appearance to appear in Florida because they don't practice in Florida because their papers were all screwed up. Yeah, like to, to give people what that means, like, you know, in the yeah. SATs, you get a certain amount of points for just writing your name. Um, <laughs> these lawyers failed to write their name correctly in the court so they couldn't even appear which is even more dangerous <laughs> because what that left on that first day of really important argument was one of the television talking head lawyers that he hires you know he's got these bunch that have spent most of their career on newsmax and fox and are quickly finding out that arguments that play really well to the viewers on one of these right-wing channels does terribly in a court of law see Sidney powell but that's what they were left with they were left with this person this female attorney who has Christina really, Bob, yeah. Christina Bob, who had like no experience. No, the other one. There's another one in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Yeah, 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 yeah you're who right. Practices, yeah, yeah. For, who practices landlord-tenant uh, law when she's not representing a former president of the United States. <laughs> she was the only one that was yeah, allowed yeah. to yeah, stand in court. Right. Crow totally crazy. This shows and that's you. where Laura Ingram goes, your lawyers, I know you're <laughs> telling me that you want to unseal the affidavit, but, but your lawyers didn't say anything in court so what is it that you are actually doing but we will keep everybody apprised of the developments there and i do want to turn this right now though, to, um, we mentioned we're going to talk about a really you know, nice Trump appointed judges, judges appointed by uh democrats who years of democracy um and this is you know really disturbing ruling out of texas district court um let me rewind a little bit and give you some background of, of the law and the issues at stake. So obviously, everybody knows that Roe v. Wade was overturned in the Dobbs decision. States like Texas have enacted total abortion bans with no exceptions in cases of rape or incest. And 
you know, other states have raced to kind of come down to it's the outrageous. radical right states with outrageous, the most extreme man. versions of these abortion bans. Well, they're going to get it. to see them all over the country. They're these getting Republican it. states just totally taking away a woman's right to choose. Well, they're going to um, get the it. Biden uh -huh. did his executive order. They're going to get it. Emergency room doctors. And in November, they're all going to fucking the lose their jobs. Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, a law that was passed in 1986. That law says if somebody shows up to an emergency room and needs life-saving treatment, an emergency room can't turn that person away. And how horrific was it that before 1986, emergency rooms could turn people away? People could literally die if they didn't have insurance or, you know, emergency rooms could just turn them away. So under EMTALA, uh, which is a federal law, the Biden administration through the Department of Health and Human Services, the HHS, sent a letter to these emergency rooms and said, even if states have total abortion bans or abortion bans, if a woman comes into the hospital and needs life-saving treatment and the standard of care requires an abortion, you, you need to provide the standard of care. You need to use your medical judgment to save the woman's life and not let the woman die. We just want to make you, we want to make you clear about that. We hope you're clear about that. If you're not, you can't let women die who show up to the emergency room, right? You would think that... That's not a controversial you, position. Let's not have let to legislate women die that. who show up to medical rooms and let doctors use their, their standard of care. Well, hmm. that's not the case. Um, so the state of Texas, Ken Paxton, their AG, sued the Biden administration for giving that guidance. And they said, under Texas state law, under our total abortion ban, oh, yeah. you can't tell us at all huh. what... what whether Fucking women should live crazy. or die or show up at the emergency room. You can't give that guidance at all to this is emergency really weird. room doctors. And so uh, there was a lawsuit Why do they care so much about legislating women's bodies? They pulled a Trump-appointed judge, judge uh, James Wesley Hendricks, and Judge Wesley Hendricks agreed. And Judge Wesley Hendricks said that the guidance given, the, the, that's what it is. It's not like a law, it's guidance saying we're striking down that guidance that's given doctors do not follow that guidance because the guidance focused on the doctor's medical judgment and it didn't balance the medical judgment against the state law which prevents the doctor from exercising the medical judgment that's what hendrick said was wrong with the guidance which is a complete upside down world version to borrow that phrase from another federal judge, um, one out in Florida who's been ruling uh, pro-democracy rulings, an uh, Obama appointee, I believe. Um, Thank you. It totally changes the dynamic of the supremacy clause, which means that what the federal government law, like EMTALA, supersedes state law, um, and in this case, provide emergency treatment is a federal law. So that's what happened out in Texas. Um, and that, of course, is going to be appealed by the Biden administration that's going to go to the Fifth Circuit. Um, but the Fifth Circuit is a very radical right-wing court, so I don't expect there to be any action there. You compare that to what happened in Idaho. Before, be, before you, let me comment on Texas before you move to Idaho. We, we, we set up the split in the circuits, or the eventual split in the circuits. Very interesting fact about this judge, because as we said earlier, sometimes you can use who appointed them as a predictor of outcome. This one's weird. So Judge Hendricks was actually originally appointed by Obama. He was going to be a federal judge under Obama, but it got 
blocked and because of recesses in the in the, in Congress, he never got his federal seat, his federal uh, judgeship under Obama. He then, when Trump came in, he chose Hendricks, which Obama had already selected, to be his judge, and the guy got confirmed ninety-eight to one by the Senate. It looked almost bipartisan because Obama had already appointed him. I just put that out there because sometimes politics makes strange bedfellows and not everybody, you can't predict what their outcome. He's obviously acting like a Trump appointment now in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, where this decision came out. So, you know, I we're going to set up now, you're going to talk about Idaho next. It's going to set up this conflict over these series of executive orders, guidance and, and uh, policies that uh, Biden and his cabinet came up with in the wake of the Dobbs decision about what Democrats and people that love democracy and a woman's right to choose can do in the short term and in the long term to um, uh, try to ameliorate the harsh uh, ruling of taking away a constitutional right of a woman to choose. This is but one example, as you've outlined, the HHS guidance about what hospitals can do in an emergency if they determine from a medical necessity the woman needs an abortion supremacy clause the the paramount power of the federal law and the federal government over state over issues in which they have taken complete um they've ousted the states is going to be implicated and this battle between we're going to hear about it more when you talk about idaho which criminalizes all abortion no matter what the cause and the life of the mother be damned what that's going to do with a a Supreme Court that if they thought, the U.S. Supreme Court, if they thought they weren't going to have to make another abortion ruling for a long, long time, exactly the opposite. They're going to get another abortion case this upcoming term that you and I'll start talking about when it opens in October. And it's probably going to be Texas versus Idaho after you talk about Idaho. Yeah, and we could talk about the strategy. You'd say, well, there's a lot of total abortion bans. Uh, these radical right states so why was it that of all of the states out there that the department of justice decided to file their first federal lawsuit against the total abortion ban as it relates to the provision of emergency medical treatment um, at hospitals and er rooms why did they choose idaho of all places well even though idaho is run by a republican governor it's actually in the ninth circuit court of appeals the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I always um, forget um, that. I always forget <laughs> that. No, no, I'm, I'm serious. Cal, I, when I think Ninth Circuit, I think where you sit. I think California and some of the Western states. I forget Idaho, which is right wing, as you're about to identify, sits in a relatively liberal appellate circuit. Exactly. And so it's the Ninth Circuit you could think of as the exact opposite of the Fifth Circuit. And so even if the Biden administration had filed their version of the Impala lawsuit in Texas. What they realized is it would go on appeal to the Fifth Circuit, who would strike it down, likely. And so the effort would probably fail anyway, you know, just because of the, uh, the dynamic there. Um, so Idaho, as you mentioned, Popak, has a essentially a total abortion ban, criminalizes it, which means that it has this chilling effect on emergency room doctors who don't know what they're supposed to do, where are they going to get arrested if they provide emergency care? And the answer is likely yes, but they don't know. But it seems like they get arrested, um, and then the burden would shift to them after there was a criminal trial to try to come up with some sort of 
you know, defense to, to justify it. But that would be in the context of they've been arrested and now they're criminally charged. So the Biden administration and the Department of Justice, just think about the DOJ. Just think about the work that Merrick Garland is doing, though, right? Like at the same time, Merrick Garland and the DOJ is prosecuting insurrectionists like 800 active cases. Left and right. Those have been resolved and 400 more will be resolved. At the same time, they're doing that. At the same time, you know, there's the search warrant that's executed on Mar-a-Lago. Um, you know, the Department of Justice is, is standing up at the same time. The kind of Department busy of right Justice now. is filing criminal <laughs> charges in the Breonna Taylor case. The Department of Justice is here fighting wow. in Idaho. For a woman's right to choose. Mm, thank you, Department of Justice. Right, as expansive as it can be, under the limitations. Fucking awesome! This Merrick Garland is like my hero. Right court to make sure women like who show up in the hero. emergency room won't die. So this lawsuit was filed in Idaho by the Department of Justice, and the lawsuit was against the state of Idaho. And the DOJ basically said, Idaho, you're under the supremacy clause. Your law, your state law, your abortion ban, as it relates to emergency room medical providers, is in conflict with EMTALA, the Emergency Treatment and Labor Act, and EMTALA, the Supremacy Clause, that prevails. So as your law relates to emergency situations, we're going to strike, we want the court to strike that down, and we want the court to enjoin or stop you from enforcing that. Let doctors provide medical treatment. And there, the judge, U.S. District Judge B. Lynn Windmill, who was a Clinton appointee, um, Judge Windmill granted the injunction um, by the Great. DOJ meeting. Thank you, Judge Windmill. Who would show up at the emergency room who would otherwise die and be treated by uh, doctors. I want to get your take on it, Popak, yeah. but I just want to reflect just for a moment just how disgusting and radical, extreme these right-wing republicans are at, at, at this stage yeah i mean it's just it's not enough that roe v wade was overturned right it's always they want to go for fucking contraception what kind of fucking dark they age wilderness so are they show up at the living in who will die if they don't get the treatment will die that's what they're, they're fighting to sue to make sure that women who show up die like they're fucking they're distract, trying to, to distract a, us with a, bullshit. Uh, an analysis much, much the Fuck way you that. just laid out on uh, this past Wednesday's podcast with Karen on this on abortion. We are talking about another couple of cases. And I, I said, I'll say it again, there's a special cruelty that goes along with the right wing of the Republican Party. Yeah. About not caring. So fucking sadistic. About women. Not caring at all, including those that are in distress, yeah. those that have been raped, those that have medical conditions. What the fuck is their problem? Um, there's a special cruelty to say things like Ken Paxton, the attorney general in Texas, after they won their Texas case. I'm not, you know, winning is losing for me from a moral standpoint, but they won their Texas case. And he said in a tweet, because that's all they can do, great day for Texas babies, <laughs> women, and healthcare professionals terrible day women. we're not talking about babies we're talking about fetuses um, this is this is that special brand of cruelty where republicans will leave women to their own devices to have to raise children ultimately left to my own devices probably would social need programs that are going to have to step in to help raise these children and make sure they're not in harm's way and and it's it really is disgusting and the more we talk about it let's talk about idaho for a minute 
because that victory there is sort of temporary. We don't quite know how this judge, and I love I love her name. It's not, it's Win W I N M I L L, but it sounds like Windmill. And Judge huh. Windmill said, for now, Andrew, we're back to an injunction setting. I I think we can wait. I don't see the irreparable harm. I think we can wait to have full adjudication on the issue of whether the supremacy clause and federal law and the Dobbs ruling comes into play in analyzing whether Idaho's total and complete criminalization is going to, is going to be able to withstand the application of EMTALA, the federal law. I don't know where it's going to be. I'm hoping I know what really is going to be, given the fact of who, who appointed her and where her sentiment seems to lie, but we don't know yet. We have a clear ruling in Texas that's subject to appeal. Here, I'm sure there'll be an appeal related to it. And we're going to have, Ben, it may not and be in October, and, and, and but the, there's uh, going to be a Supreme caucus. Court will knock it down unless you expand the Supreme Court, Biden. With, with uh, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson sitting in her seat rightfully about these cases. This will not be the only case where there'll be a, a, a split in the circuits about abortion because states, legislatures, and hospitals are making all sorts of bizarre decisions about women <sighs> and their right to choose or their failure to have a right to choose. And that's leading to tremendous um, uh, emotional, moral, physical impact. I don't think men should be not voting on these issues. Decisions. And Nothing to fucking do with them. And, and, and who's suffering? The woman. And this is going to have to come back. If Sam Alito thought when he wrote Dobbs that what happens in the real world is of no concern to us, good luck, because you're going to get at least a half a dozen cases involving abortion and what people are supposed to do with your decision in the next term. And that's the way you framed it there is perfect, too. Your decision, the state's decision, and which you refer to as, you know, these bizarre decisions and bizarre outcomes or these cruel, horrific outcomes are state-imposed decisions, not the woman's decision with her family and her doctor. It is the state's decision. It is people like people like DeSantis. It is people like Ted Cruz, right? It is these types of people. Shitheads. Who don't even know what ectopic pregnancy is. Who don't even care about what an ectopic Even the women, even the Republican women in leadership, Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah. Where are they? they? Where's shit? Nikki Haley? Where are all the people they that say they're the leaders of their party on this issue? They're falling they're in line anti-choice. behind this great win of the Dobbs decision. Well, and, you know, it's, it's part of this fascist cosplay. Love that term, and fascist cosplay.
know, I do listen regularly sometimes I miss uh, one or two episodes. Kansas, the reason things went well for progressives and Democrats related to abortion in Kansas is because, I don't know if you caught this, Ben, the overwhelming number of people registered to vote for the first time in Kansas since Dobbs are women. And that's what has to happen in November. The, you know, there, there's new deadlines now because all the Republican state houses have limited the ability to register to vote because they don't want voters because when you have voters the republicans often usually lose so there are deadlines but we're only in august and there's still time in every one of the states that matters for people and women to register to vote and that is really important i know that's what the midas touch uh podcast and the midas brothers are, are all about and I'm, I'm standing right behind you let's talk about what's going on in Fulton County with Governor Brian Kemp and Lindsey Graham and some additional individuals being asked to, not really being asked, subpoenaed <laughs> to testify <laughs> for the uh, special grand jury. Pretty now. please. <laughs> exactly. I'll talk about that. We got to also talk about the DOJ memo relating to uh, Bill Barr's decision not to prosecute or really Bill Barr's reverse engineering the decision with some of the most illogical. Uh, if you obstruct and you succeed, it could therefore not be obstruction, is essentially, you know, what these idiots in Bill Barr wrote, but we'll, we'll break that down. Um, before doing that, has he, have you gone to store.midastouch.com? Go to store.midastouch.com, get the top Midas Touch gear. We're talking about yeah, new shirts, Rovember shirts. We got Row, Row, Row Your Ho shirts. We got forty five shirts. We got the new dark branded sticker pack, store.midastouch.com. You're part of the Midas Mighty movement. You're a legal AF, or get the legal AF here at store.midastouch.com. Popak, also our next partner is Athletic Greens. This program is brought to you by Athletic Greens. You may be wondering, Ben, what is this green drink that you've been drinking the entire podcast? It's Athletic Greens. It tastes great. It's a health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple and there's so much stressors in life so it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive right busy schedules poor sleep exercise the environment work stress or just simply not eating enough of the right foods can lead us deficient in key nutritional areas ag1 by athletic greens is the category leading superfood product that brings comprehensive convenient daily nutrition to everyone and the key thing that you do here is I take this green powder, that's the Athletic Greens powder, I put it in this cup, or whatever cup you like, I shake it up, I drink it, Right, I get the point. And it tastes great, it's cheaper than a... I do the same with smoothies, so I will extol the virtues of fruit smoothies. Get a bunch of uh, fruits, grow trees, grow your own fruits, so you can make your own smoothies, like fruit smoothies, that's my, that's my goal. It's for you. It contains less than one gram of sugar. And uh, please go uh, sign my petition to um, charge Trump and 147 traitors with insurrection and remove them and bar them from office. HTTPS colon slash slash. Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune. bit.ly slash. 
SK, no, 3KA1MMD. I'll put it in the um, the write-up of this episode. Go sign it, please. Thank you. And thank you for a million followers and listeners and subscribers across social media. I do appreciate you. The Tristed Sisters and Brothers, Tristed Brothers. <laughs> Stop right here, and I'm proud to have them as a sponsor. Bolton County, Popak, I'm, I'm just tossing this one to you. I know I know you love your Fawny Willis breakdown. I love my, I love, I love my Fawny. And uh, not to um, undermine anything that we've said earlier in the podcast about um, the Espionage Act, the obstruction, criminal charges, and the criminal peril that... Trump is looking at, I still believe uh-huh. the, the most um, likely prosecution of Donald Trump is coming out of Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, I just, I, it's Fawny definitely, the, it's, I gotta disagree with you there. Okay, so they're point, going after the, the Trump mo- crime. The most likely one right now. And they're going after the espionage. All right, wait, but you're not letting me finish. So then, so then it was great because you answered the question I didn't ask. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that they're going to get the obstruction charge. I think they're going to get the obstruction charge, whether they go forward with it. I still think that the the thing that knocks Donald Trump into jail and off the ballot, I still believe, is Fawny Willis. Donald Garland has a whole set of political issues that concern him, rightly so, about prosecuting the president. Doesn't mean he didn't do the search warrant. Doesn't mean he's not going to, you know, do whatever the judges tell him to do in terms of releasing things and making sure that it's set up well for the next shot. Fawny Willis doesn't have those implications, doesn't have those hurdles. She's the special advisor to a special grand jury that's also overseen by Judge McBurney in Atlanta. And she's not as, she is political. She's a democratically elected prosecutor. So, I got a couple of predictions that you and I will have to tussle over one if you remember we're seven months ago we'll, 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 take we'll take that debate that's all right that's okay remember i also said he'd be indicted by december 